You're listening to the Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson and hosted by the Concrete Conservatives Overtime. Is that a good name for us? This is Mac no, on the no, Rock. No, this is Statues and Stories. And Ed Vidal. But we've got to be like, you know, Grand Central here. We're hosting Adam Levinson. Absolutely. The Mind. So we call you just the mind, or we we can't say myth because Ed's the myth. He's already took that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote my father. My father says, "Call me whatever you want, just don't call me late for dinner." <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. So we already had someone who left, so she wouldn't have to listen to Manny yeah. claiming that she had to go to dinner. Yeah, it's amazing. When I got on my rampages tonight, two people hung up on us, and uh, hung up on me, I guess. So that's just what happens when you have ideas. A bad idea prevails. Yep, yep, yep. All right, so uh, we're on, uh, I think it's part three of Executive Privilege of the Founding Fathers. So the background, just to remind everybody, and by all means, folks can go to the radio station's website, WSQF, under the podcasts, and you can look at volume one or part one, which talked about the theory of executive privilege. And just to remind everybody, now let me ask the question, executive privilege, is it mentioned by name in the Constitution? Nope. But it's grounded in principles of what? Separation of powers. There we go. So we talked about, for an hour, the theory of executive privilege. Then the second hour that we did last week was talking about examples of the founding fathers and mothers and how executive privilege was used by Washington and by Adams, and we can go through some of those examples. But tonight, we want to, as promised last week, continue it into a conversation of how it's been applied in the courts. And the truth, the quick answer is it's only gone to the United States Supreme Court once. So that's why this part of our discussion will be relatively short, because it's only gone to the U.S. Supreme Court in the U.S. Nixon case. Throw out a year, guys. Oh, my God. 1974? 1974. And I threw out to you last week a very interesting coincidence, and this is a good way to review where we left off from last month or last last show, which was there were three examples of executive privilege being fleshed out and analyzed by the Washington administration. And I refer to the Washington administration because these guys, in fact, this is the pending post that's going to be on statutesandstories.com, which is the website that's the history blog that, that gives these examples and quotes primary sources. But I think it's really important to look at what Washington did because Washington was having the, his discussions about executive privilege with Hamilton and with Madison. And these are, you know, some of the, the giants in the history of the evolution of, of American constitutional law. So they took the time. And these are some of the things that I'm quoting, by the way, in the upcoming post on statutesandstories.com is how Washington understood that the, the first couple examples of what he would do, everything he did, was going to be a precedent for later on. So they were very careful and methodical and they were very thoughtful about how should they respond in these examples of how executive privilege came up. And again, it wasn't called executive privilege, but it was based upon separation of powers. So the first example was, the first incident was 1792, which was the St. Clair incident. St. Clair was a general. His troops were slaughtered by the Native Americans in the Ohio River area, and Congress wanted to do an investigation. And uh, when Congress made that request for these military papers to find out, and they were interested, why did this excursion, why did this a group of, uh, and it was, a, it was a horrific victory, it was a big victory for the Native Americans, but it was a big loss to the uh, to the American army, and the Congress had to debate whether or not we want to uh, try to send back in more troops. Do we have to increase the size of the military? Do we have to uh, just lay low for a while? Was it the general's fault? Was it St. Clair's fault? Was it the supplies that were inadequate? Was the training inadequate? That's what they wanted to find out. So that's when they sent that request. They sent it to the Secretary of War. So here's another question. Do you remember who was the Secretary of War, the first Secretary of War, 1792? John Knox. Henry Knox. Henry he then, Knox. Uh, shoots okay. it over to Washington, and Washington calls in the heavy hitters. He convenes his cabinet, and it's not exactly sure what the first meeting of the cabinet was because back then Washington would ask for written answers, and he would ask for written communications from uh, his advisors. Secretary of State was Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury was uh, was Hamilton, and then the Attorney General. So you had four people in the cabinet. It was the uh, Randolph. Edmund Randolph was the Attorney General. Yep. So initially Washington would get their opinions in writing, but then this may have been, and we're not exactly sure because it didn't keep minutes, this may have been the first time that the cabinet met together as a cabinet was on this issue of executive privilege. And we know about what occurred because it's written about in Jefferson's diary. So he summarizes it in his papers. And this may have been, but we're not positive, it may have been the first time that the cabinet met together as a cabinet with those four participants, the Attorney General, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, Washington, and Secretary of Treasury. And we talked about that last week. And what was their decision about whether or not they should release to 
to Congress. I think it was the House. Yeah, no, it was the House of Representatives was asking for the military uh, communications with St. Clair. And uh, refresh our memory, everybody, what did the cabinet and what did Hamilton put it in writing to Washington? What in the, in the suggested letter that he should write to Congress? And what did they decide? Only Ed can answer that question. Well, I have, I'm looking Look, back he's, at he's my like notes. A, 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 he's doing much better than I am. He's he looking... released all the info. Right. So they, they decided there were four parts, which will be summarized. Uh, by the way, uh, Mr. Yeah, Levinson, you have to give us multiple choice answers so Manny can handle it. Yeah, because right? he's going into his cheat sheets. I have a note here. He has got his notes from law school. Okay, go so, ahead. Long story short, it was an important decision. This is the first time ever in the history of the country, which had just been created as the new federal government. The Constitution was 1789. This is 1792. And uh, the answer was they decided that uh, Congress did have the right to request information to do an inquest, which is what they called it. That's I-N-Q-U-E-S-T. Yep. Uh, they decided that the request should be answered by the Secretary of War. It should be answered by the president. So the president should have to decide, not the Secretary of War, because that's who initially the request went to. And then they decided that once uh, they looked at the communications, even though it may have been politically embarrassing for Washington that you know he was the, the you know he was the general that led us during the Revolutionary War, he's a, he's a hero. Even though it politically may not have been the best thing to do, they decided that there were no reasons for confidentiality to hold on to it, so they released everything. That was the first example of executive privilege. Second example was two years later. That was 1794. That was with the Secretary of um, or he was uh, Morris, Gouverneur Morris. And I always confuse Gruffner Morris and Robert Morris. But, but one of the Morrises was our ambassador to France. And this is uh, during the French Revolution and the, the the Madisonian, Jeffersonian Democrat Republicans. Back then, the parties were different with names, but they were the Democrat Republicans. Wanted to know the communications that were taking place because it looks like we may have been going into war with France at this time. Things uh, were getting a little dicey. And uh, long story short, uh, when that request came from the House, uh, just to remind everybody and refresh it for the, the viewers, what did the uh, the Washington administration do? Again, Washington convenes his cabinet, and, uh, and these are communications that are taking place with the, the, the minister to France, who has a big mouth, and uh, he is very opinionated. And the concern was uh, some of these communications, which are diplomatic communications in, a, in an area which is fraught because there's controversies and people are getting killed and executed in France. And our ambassador is still in France. So just to remind everybody, what did Washington and the cabinet decide to do? And it was not the same thing they did in 1792, where they released everything. They had a different answer. What they do in Nothing. No, they redacted. Well, nothing, meaning they didn't release anything. No, they redacted. They did release, but they redacted. So the quick answer is that uh, things that they thought would be problematic, I would agree with Manny, they did not release things that were problematic. So what that means is that they redacted. So there were about 40 letters or communications and attachments, and they released 39 of the 40. So they did not release, I think, the 40th, and they made 48 little separate redactions where they just left out because these were letters that were written. They re re rewrote the letters. They had scribes or clerks copy them and leave out the sections that they thought were sensitive. So that's the second example, which was the first time that they actually used executive privilege, because in the first example, 1792, they released everything. So this is the second example of executive privilege where it was actually used, and that was the Morris Affair, 1794, and just bringing us forward to the third example under the Washington administration, and this is now the Jays Treaty, where the House, after the treaty had been approved in the Senate, wanted to see communications with our ambassadors, same country, to France. And uh, this is President Washington made the decision along with his cabinet. Um, and this was because the House wanted that information to play politics on whether or not they would fund the treaty. So they were asking, again, for diplomatic communications. And uh, this is 1796. So just to remind everybody, what did they decide a little bit different in 1796 in the context of the House requesting diplomatic correspondence about treaty. They they did not participate as well. There you did go. Nothing. They, they, they held on to everything. And Hamilton and the cabinet agreed that the treaty had already been approved. There was no legitimate legislative purpose on the part of the House, because the House doesn't get to make treaties, and they refused to give anything. So those were three separate examples of executive privilege coming up under Washington, and we talked about that last week. So and and the House, by the way, doesn't, doesn't have, doesn't create tax returns either, so. No, they have the power of the purse, but I think that's a good point that Adam made, that it, it's the House has a weaker argument for diplomatic papers than the Senate. No, I was just, I was just you know, bringing us to today about requesting Trump's tax return. Oh, no, nobody. If, if they can get the president's tax return, they, they can get, get Adam's. Your, yeah, your tax. 
tax returns. No, they don't need mine. They yeah. want Adams, mm-hmm. and they want Vidal's because you know you guys are attorneys. Yep. Everybody wants an attorney's tax return, not a poor retail. Can I ask you this question, and you'll direct the direction we want to go tonight. So I, I am prepared and very interested in talking about Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, yes. who was the seventh president, and he I described it earlier, I think, as the boldest assertion of executive privilege, and it provoked a reaction by the Senate. And Henry Clay. So it's going to be very interesting to talk about President Jackson. Yep. Uh, in, in particular, there are modern presidents who happen to really like Jackson for various reasons that we can talk about. <laughs> talk about You're setting people. me up. Uh, <laughs> no, he's a good subject. He is. He's uh, Jackson. Is was a terrible president, but he, you know, he was all right. He was all right. He was all right. Yeah, he just slaughtered a yeah, lot of positives people. and negatives. And we've talked about Jackson. If viewers want to go back and listen to some of the earlier discussions, we talked about the succession kind of, or the, the conflict nullification. In the 1730s, under Jackson, having to do with South Carolina, threatening to uh, null the nullification. Nullification. Right? It wasn't succession. It was more nullification. Yeah, so not succession hour yet. People can go listen to. But uh, here, the question for you is: Do we want to focus first on Jackson and executive privilege? Sure. Because Jackson really wanted a very powerful and succeeded in, in raising the bar in a way of, of setting a much higher standard for the president, having a lot more authority. So, do we want to talk about Jackson first, or do we want to talk about the two cases of executive privilege? The first being the in reverse order, the Nixon case, which is the only time executive privilege went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I also want to talk with you about the first time that uh, Chief Justice Marshall, the first time executive privilege went before a case, before a court, was uh, coincidentally before Chief Justice Marshall. And that involved, we, we mentioned it briefly in another night, the treason trial of Aaron Burr. So which do you want to talk about first, the court cases, or do you want to talk about the very interesting story of, of Jackson? And I, want to go, I want to go with Jackson. You, you've teed it up perfectly, so yeah. yeah there's, there's a Jackson Memorial Hospital, but there's no Burr Memorial Hospital. <laughs> All right, we're going to jump into Jackson. So uh, Andrew Jackson, remember, was a new kind of president, and he came in after the era of good feelings. The era of good feelings was Madison and Monroe, and um, you know, there you had really one president and the same party controlled the House and the Senate, so everyone got along. So you didn't really see big conflicts. Uh, separation of powers really isn't that, much, that necessary when all the branches are getting along, uh, although I would argue potentially that it's even more important when all the branches get along because, um, you know, the idea is that uh, you don't want too much, you want to protect minority rights, and we can define what minority means in the context of constitutional law. But uh, here, everyone got along, and uh, there, there weren't really battles between the Senate or the House and the President or the Supreme Court. So things were pretty quiet during the era of good feelings, and that's why it's called the era of good feelings. Everybody was happy. Things were going well. Uh, and then you had the War of 1812, and uh, the, the context now for Jackson is that he is very opposed to what was referred to back then as the Second Bank of the United States. Right. And we have to understand what the Second Bank of the United States did. We also have to understand that Jackson came in as a brand-new political party. He was the, Jack, the Jacksonian, instead of the Democrat-Republicans, these are just the Democrats, the, the Jacksonian Democrats. And he's all interested in... Um, before there were limits on who could vote, he's all interested in giving everybody the franchise. And repeal the Electoral College. No, no, no. Yes, he was. Yeah, okay. He was the first to suggest the repeal of the Electoral College because he lost that way uh, four years earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Manny, you're 100% correct, so let's give the dates. 1824, Jackson won the popular vote, but because John Quincy Adams, who was the president before Jackson, uh, had more support within the Congress, particularly in the Senate and the House, and John, remember, Jackson had the majority of all the votes, and there were multiple candidates, but he didn't have enough for a majority, even what, though he had the plurality. What, what, he, so the he made vote, someone a secretary no, he, of state. No, wait, but he had a, the plurality of the popular vote, right? Correct. Okay. Yes, and then I believe Quincy Adams did uh, did a deal with the third place finisher. Henry Clay, and made him Secretary of State. Who was that gentleman? Um, he did a deal with a someone. A corrupt bargain, yes. And they 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 kept Jackson out, and then he 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 won four years later. I forgot who that person was, but a very prominent man became uh, Secretary yeah, of State. Henry Clay. I was think. it Clay? No. Yeah. But three of the big names in that time frame, they all had big egos, and we're going to talk about them tonight if we have enough time. So Andrew Jackson loses that election of 1824, even though he got more votes than anybody else. 
and he spends the next four years beating the drums of the, you said it, the corrupt bargain, but that's the way the process works, that the, the House has to vote on who they want to choose as president. Uh, they did not want Jackson, and uh, you know they voted for their buddy, which was John Quincy Adams, who was the son of John Adams, and John Quincy Adams was not reelected in 1828. Jackson comes in in 1828, and he's on a mission, and he's on a mission to do several things. He wants pure democracy. He doesn't want these corrupt bargains anymore. He wants to get rid of the Electoral College because he left and the National Bank prevented him from winning US, in 1824, yeah. and he, he focused on the, the second bank of the United States, and the first bank was created in 1789, and go to com the website, and you can read all about uh, Alexander Hamilton was the big proponent of a big, vocal, strong, muscular federal government, and uh, there was a big controversy. Jefferson, who was in that cabinet, did not like to see, and was opposed to a bank of the United States, and Hamilton wrote a very detailed analysis, same idea. Washington would ask for the input from his cabinet. The Attorney General said, no, this is pushing things too far. Nowhere does the Constitution say you can create a bank. And, of course, Hamilton's position was, well, not only does it say that Congress can coin money and collect taxes, but we need a place to put the taxes. And Hamilton would point to the elastic clause. What is the elastic clause? Ooh. Elastic, you mean uh, necessary and proper? Determine the the value of coin. You mean in the preamble? Not in the preamble, but in Article One of the Constitution, Hamilton, I'll call it Hamilton's favorite clause that allows Congress to do whatever is necessary, necessary and proper. There you go. So Hamilton, in a very lengthy opinion to Washington, and Hamilton would do this overnight. Washington would ask for his opinion. The next day, he'd get a you know a multi-volume, and I'm exaggerating, but you know pages and pages of, of detailed legal analysis. And uh, Hamilton defended the Bank of the United States. And so Washington had to decide: did he want to veto it, or did he want to uh, to sign it? So he did approve the first Bank of the United States. And Hamilton, among other reasons, explained that Congress has express powers to tax, to spend, to make coins, etc. And uh, not just to, to tax and to spend, but to use the money, uh, and in order to carry out those express powers. And war, de- and also you said previously to, to pay off war debt. To pay off debts, the yeah. pension's exactly right, to get the economy humming. So, uh, you know, Hamilton pointed to what was referred to as the Elastic Clause, and this is uh, one of the most important clauses if you believe in a strong congressional role. Uh, so Congress can not only do what's enumerated, but they can do what is necessary to an express or enumerated power. So uh, Washington agreed and, and, and signed the First Bank of the United States, uh, but it only had a charter, and I should really know how many years, but let's say it was around 20, 20, 20 years. 20 years. I'm sorry? 20 years, I'm pretty 20 sure. Years. So yeah. it phases, it sunsets, and we could argue about it. Is that government sunset maybe a good idea in certain contexts? So it came up again, if that was 1789, 20 years later would be uh, 1809. Uh, now they have to decide if we're going to charter it again or not. And one of the problems was they waited a couple of years before they chartered it, and you had the War of 1812. And the issue was, during the War of 1812, Congress had a lot of trouble, here Madison is the president, in getting the funds necessary to defend the country. So after the War of 1812, when they saw what happened without a bank and without that centralized financial control, they decided that, you know what, we need a bank in the United States. And Madison, who was one of the opponents of the Bank of the United States the first time around, was the president that signed off on it. I want to say around 1812, after the war, they reinstituted the second charter, so the second birth of the Bank of the United States. So if that was in 1812, it's going to run out again in 1832, somewhere in that time frame. Um, 20 years, give or take, from 1812. So after the War of 1812, they reinstituted the Bank of the United States. So Jackson now has it in his, his guns, in his sights. And I want to say it was 1836. I may have misspoken. So 1836 is when it's going to run out the second, the third time. Uh, so they have to reinstitute it uh, for the for the third birth of the um, of the Bank of the United States. So Jackson is, is really focusing on getting rid of this bank. He thinks that, and I, I could summarize some of his political philosophy, and some of his philosophy matches very closely with modern Republican philosophy, and some of his philosophy matches with modern democratic philosophy. So he's, he's a mixed bag. There are things you can like, there are things you might not like. But let me give you some of what the historians use to describe him. And this is during our hour where I point out the books I have in front of me. One book is Henry Clay, Statement, Statesman for the Union, and this is by Robert Ramini. I also have the biography of Andrew Jackson, which is called Andrew Jackson, The Life and Times of Andrew Jackson by H.W. Brands. And uh, what do these historians mention about Jackson and his political philosophy? As a quick answer, let me give you some quotes. 
is that um, you know he was interested in advancing the cause of democracy, and for him, democracy meant expanding the executive power, and it also meant the will of the majority. Because remember, as Manny pointed out, 1824, the will of the majority was not carried out. So for him, he wants pure democracy, and I should point out that for him, and back then, unfortunately, democracy was white males. It was not women, and it was not African Americans who were in the South were slaves. They were property under that kind of a regime. And thankfully, we've come a long way. Okay, also, yeah. they, there were property requirements for voting at that time, which he opposed, I think. That's right. So back then, it wasn't every white male who could vote, and Jackson was interested in opening the franchise to all white males, getting rid of these property restrictions. So he also wanted a smaller Congress, because he thought the more people were in Congress, the more the Democratic franchise is getting diminished by having too many elected representatives. He wants. He, he thought, in his view, that the president, and he was really the first one to, the first president to express these views. And I'll quote you now, for example, from his first State of the Union address. He calls it the, the first principle of our system, he declared in the State of the Union, is that the majority is to govern. He called for a constitutional amendment to eliminate the Electoral College because, quote, the pe to the people belongs the right of electing their chief magistrate, that's what they called the president, and he thought the more elected representatives there were, that it would be less likely that the popular will uh, would, uh, would be carried out. So Jackson wanted to reconstruct the office, and he wanted to direct that the people be enfranchised and given power. And by the way, I misspoke. He says that the more elected representatives there were, the more likely that the popular will be will be frustrated. So he wants less members of Congress. Let me read that again. The more elected representatives there were, he observed, the more likely that the popular will would be frustrated. So he does not want a big Congress because he thinks that the franchise is going to get uh, diluted if you have too many members of Congress. So what else? Uh, he was referred to as uh, King, at the time, King Caucus. The way presidents were being chosen was uh, through the House of Representatives and through the party uh, was picking and choosing who they wanted to be president. So that was referred to as King Caucus. And Jackson wants to reinvigorate the presidency and is considered by many historians to have been one of the nation's first and most vigorous in his, in his use of a chief executive by the president and his vision again was that the you know, direct representative. He thought he was as the only member of the federal government who was directly, who was you know, chosen by the people. He thought that he should be the most powerful. And uh, for him, it wasn't the separation of powers between three co-equal branches. He thought the president should be the first among equals. So here's some more quotes. Uh, Jackson understood that the presidency, as he was the representative of the American people, was the only official in the federal government chosen by the majority. And many cartoons in those days referred to him as King Andrew the First. You know, they thought he was taking on too much power, that he was almost a king. And uh, some more examples. He's going to do some things we'll talk about tonight, which is going to get to executive privilege that became very controversial. Well, and, didn't he, didn't he uh, completely ignore a treaty that was previously signed by the United States and the Indians? and allowed them to um, be slaughtered, basically. He went ahead and just ignored a treaty. In fact, he pretty much, I think it was uh, Nebraska that wasn't a, a state yet, but he wanted to see them establish themselves as a state, which meant uh, sending the, the Native Indians farther west. And in the process, uh, it was a, a disaster, not to mention the the... The, the controversy he had with uh, Henry Biddle over the bank for his re-election. You threw out a lot. So we're going to come back to Henry Biddle and the Bank of the United States. But since you mentioned Native Americans, uh, at the time, and this isn't my terminology, this is what they were referred to, there were five, quote, civilized Native American tribes, particularly the Cherokee tribe. And the Cherokees had made a conscious decision to get a written, written language. They had Cherokee newspapers in the 1820s, and uh, the Cherokees were trying to use the technology of agriculture, and uh, they were trying to get along and, uh, you know, yeah, they, they own slaves. A description of being a savage. They own slaves. Many of the other politicians would describe in, in terms that are not politically correct. They were very hostile to the Native Americans. And you're right that Jackson wanted them to be relocated, and that's the Trail of Tears in 1838 time frame, where the, these uh, civilized tribes, the fight, despite the fact that they were, they were doing the right thing, they were living, trying to live in, in peace and harmony. And even though they had treaties, I think, which is your point, Manny, yes. uh, the, the federal government wasn't protecting the sovereign rights of these Native American tribes. Yeah. And the Jackson, and historians can debate, I would be on the side of the Jackson uh, as much as he would claim he was trying to protect the Native American tribes by sending them to Oklahoma. He was reneging on the deal. 
his position was that we're paying the money and we're relocating them, but we're paying them first. But of course, they're giving up, I don't know the ratio, but 10 times as much land in the southeast they're giving up compared to the amount of land that they're getting. Yeah. They were being paid, and but it was a forced relocation, and many died on that trail of tears. So that's yeah. one of the areas where right. Jackson and can rightly be criticized. They were, and yeah. I, I also heard, I've read that they were so civilized that they owned slaves. Wait a minute, that's a misnomer. That, uh, they owned slaves. The Cherokees owned slaves. So African they were so slaves. Si- they were so civilized. No, 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 I'm just saying, we call them civilized like, tribes. Is that a, uh, in grammar, the, is that the, a double negative? The Cherokee tribes an irony owned or slaves a and took them on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Jeez. That's a Trail of Tears all in a very day. different time back then. Yep. And it's hard to be relativistic in your, your, your view of that history. But today we can all agree that um, you know, the Trail of Tears, Tears is horrible and any kind of slavery is horrible. Yep. I want to just give you an example of a case, because it's also, you're, I'm sure you're going to mention it, when we when we talk about pros and cons of, of Jefferson, I'm sorry, of Jackson, Andrew Jackson. So the Cherokees um, wound up hiring former attorney generals to represent them because they thought, and they were right, they had treaty protections. And the federal government was not protecting their rights. The state of Georgia was passing laws to arrest the um, you know, the Christian missionaries that would go among the Native American tribes. They were getting arrested in Georgia, and uh, the state of Georgia was doing everything possible to, uh, to confiscate land and wasn't abiding by these treaty obligations. So the, the Cherokees bring a case. And in the first case that they brought, they tried to argue that, hey, we are a sovereign nation, and under these treaty rights, we can enforce them. So that was a case that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and real quickly, the decision by the Supreme Court at the time was that they are a sovereign nation, but they're not, under the Constitution, a separate country. They are a sovereign nation uh, which is distinct. They're an Indian Indian tribes, which are not the same as a foreign nation. And the court said they did not have standing to sue as foreign nations. And Marshall, who was the Chief Justice, said that if the court, if the case was brought back under the pro- proper posture, perhaps it could be reconsidered. So what did the Cherokees do? And again, I give them great credit for this. They said, you know what, if the court's giving us an opening, even though he's dismissed the case the first time, we're going to bring a second case, which they did. The case was called Worcester versus Georgia, and in the Worcester case, the issue is, even though they're not a sovereign meaning separate nation, but they are separate nation meaning the same as a Britain or a France, even though they were a domestic nation within the bounds of the United States, uh, they brought the law, the lawsuit to enforce their treaty rights the second time, and uh, what the court decided is that they do have standing this time to, to sue, uh, but they were a domestic dependent nation, and that was the first case they were they lack standing. And again, the court said that we're holding open the possibility that we might rule in their favor in a proper case with the proper party. So they brought the case again. And when the case was rebrought the second time around, uh, the court decided that, um, yeah, they do have rights and George is violating their rights. And this is where Jackson comes into the discussion. So now the court is vindicating that uh, they do have protections, but the protections don't happen on their own. The federal government has to send in troops and has to be willing to abide by the by those treaties. And the problem was that Jackson uh, didn't want to listen to what the Supreme Court said. And there's a very famous quote that uh, that is attributed to Jackson. And let me try to paraphrase it for you. But you remember what that quote is? That the many think Mr. Right. Mr. Um, I don't know who the Chief Justice was then. Mr. Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Perfect. So this is what's understood to have been Jackson's response. So the determination was made that the Cherokee Nation was sovereign, and according to the decision rendered by Chief Justice Marshall, this meant that Georgia had no rights to enforce state laws in its territory. So if Georgia was trying to say, we're going to pass laws which is going to be hostile to the Native Americans, but if they're sovereign, then within their areas, Georgia can impede on their sovereign rights. right? And uh, the court agreed that uh, they are sovereign. They're not a separate country outside of the United States, but they're a domestically sovereign within the bounds of the United States. And uh, here the issue is Jackson refused to uphold the ruling in the case. He directed the expulsion of the Cherokee Nation and the other tribes, these five civilized tribes. And you're exactly right that uh, Jackson is believed to have said, okay, Mr. Marshall, now you enforce the law. I'm not going to do it. And and his view, by the way, about the court, because he wants a strong uh, you know, federal government through the president, his view was that the court's only authority was to write opinions, and here I'm going to quote you. So Jackson argued that the Constitution only grants the courts, quote, such influence as the force of their reasoning may deserve. If he doesn't agree with their decision, he's not going to follow it. And that's what he decided to do, not to follow and not to give it any any weight with uh, presidential support. So that, that's some more background about Jackson. So this is a buildup. Uh, when, when and this is a guy that used to duel. This is a guy that was involved in multiple duels. 
this is a guy we've talked about on another night where um, you know he he would hang traitors and he did he he hung spies during the War of 1812. Uh, you know he was very loose in his interpretation of, of the orders that he was given when he was a general during the War of 1812. And of course, what was the big battle he won in 1812? Battle of New Orleans. Battle of New Orleans? New Orleans. So, we're, so we're, we're building up an anticipation about when, when a strong, um, you know, very vigorous Jackson gets into a, a stand-down, drag-down fight with Congress, and executive privilege comes in, this gives everybody some background about who Jackson was. All right, so now let's go back to the issue of the Bank of the United States. So we've described how Jackson wants more power to the people. We've described how Jackson thinks that the Bank of the United States uh, represents regulation, which this is regulation that hurts the poor, that helps the rich, because he thought that the Bank of the United States is allowing the wealthy to get wealthier. And the way that the Bank of the United States was set up, it was a private partnership, private-public partnership. So the stock, and let me, me ask you to take a guess, what percent of the stock of the Bank of the United States was owned by the federal government and what percent was owned by private investors? You want to venture a guess? No. Or should I give you multiple choice? I, I think the government Many owned... Many likes multiple choice. Yeah, uh, I think they owned 100%. No, no, it was a public-private. Yes, let me give you a choice. One-tenth owned by the United States government, one-fifth, one-twentieth, or one-half? I'd say half. I'd say whole. Half. Okay. So in multiple choice, I'm curious what others might think, but it was intended to be primarily the emphasis was on private public. Mm. So only one-fifth of the of the, of the okay. stock and, and the assets of the Bank of the United States were were, were private. I'm sorry, the other way around. One-fifth was federal and four-fifths was, was private investors. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jackson criticized the Bank of the United States because he thought that um, it was making too much money. It was making an 8% per year profit, and the Bank of the United States was deciding who to lend to, and he thought any federal involvement with making those decisions, picking and choosing winners, uh, was concentrating power in the hands of the wealthy. So he wanted to get rid of the Bank of the United States. And remember that it's going to run out in 1836 is when the second Bank of the United States ends, and it has to be rechartered or reinstituted. And Jackson gets elected in 1832, so there are four more years. Wasn't, uh, wasn't Biddle his, uh, uh, the election was against Biddle, wasn't it? So Biddle is the, is the head of the Bank of the United States, and he had done a good job, Biddle. Well, he, did, he wasn't a candidate. Correct. He was not a candidate, to my knowledge, but he was the he was the he came from a very uh, influential and wealthy Philadelphia family. Um, so he's the exact opposite of a Hamilton because uh, you know, he, he has a lot of financial clout, a very well-educated guy. And then when Biddle comes in to head the Bank of the United States, he cleaned and that was a, a true criticism. There was corruption, but he cleaned up the corruption, and then he was very influential in making sure that it uh, you know it does its job properly. But it did sort of bleed into politics, and uh, it, it did exercise political control. In fact, back then. Uh, Henry Clay, if I'm not mistaken, and other members of Congress would get stipends from the Bank of the United States to represent the Bank of the United States. Today, you know, that would be unheard of. The ethics laws are stricter today. But back then, and I, I want to say it was Clay, I don't hold me to it, but the, you know, the Bank of the United States would pay, uh, you know, members of Congress for whatever services that they were rendering, almost as lobbyists or to be lawyers in their spare time on behalf of the bank. So that they were they were not reluctant about spreading around the wealth to support the politics of the Bank of the United States. But you're right about Biddle. So he, Biddle became a big enemy of Jackson because Biddle wants to make sure that the bank gets reinstituted. And you know, it played an important role. There's a good percentage and makes me some of the statistics. So I told you one-fifth of the stock was owned by the federal government and also one-fifth of the directors were appointed by the federal government, which meant four-fifths of the stock and four-fifths of the directors were private. And the, the Bank of the United States, under the law that created it, could keep and transfer government funds. Only that bank could do it. Only the Bank of the United States. There were other state banks. Uh, also, it had to help in the collection of taxes, it would do loans to the government, and only the Bank of the United States could make loans to the government. Uh, and that was part of the theory that the federal government shouldn't have to pay interest to other banks, right? So another thing it did was it issued federal banknotes. And here's the numbers. $13 million in banknotes have been issued, which served as a paper currency, and that made up 40% of all the notes in circulation. So 60% of the notes were state notes or state dollar bills, and 40% of all the, the loans or the, the, the dollars that were in circulation were, were federal banknotes from the Bank of the United States, right. and so it played an important role in the, in the, in the economy, and uh, it, it owned reserves. So to prevent runs on the federal bank, uh, this is one of the things that uh, the individual you mentioned, Biddle, put in place, was they had currency requirements, and uh, they couldn't loan out all the money, and they kept a, a very solid reserve. So they were doing the right thing. They also controlled the money supply about how much credit they're extending 
contributing to the economy. So you know, people can criticize the Bank of the United States. People who like the Federal Reserve can say they like the Bank of the United States. People who don't like the Federal Reserve can criticize the Bank of the United States. Jackson, there was no doubt about it, was very hostile to the Bank of the United States. And in his second annual message to Congress, he proposed folding the Bank of the United States into the Treasury Department and the legislation establishing the bank, again, was not up for authorization until 1836. And this becomes a big controversy and a big issue in that election in 1832. And Jackson makes this one of his commitments. And he's going to say that if you vote for me, I'm going to get rid of the bank in the United States. And when he was elected in a, in a, run, you know, a landslide election in 1832, it wasn't even close. And I can give you some of the numbers on that election, but it was not even close. And uh, long story short, so... He's now coming into office for his second term. He made a commitment that I'm going to do everything I can to get rid of this bank in the United States, but he does not control both the House and the Senate. The Senate is controlled by the opposition party, which are the Whigs, Henry Clay. And I mentioned there were some, some big personalities back then who had a lot of influence in the Senate. One of them was Daniel Webster, one of them was Henry Clay, and another was Calhoun. And these were all enemies of Jackson. And what happens? The the members of the Senate put up for, remember that the bill to reauthorize doesn't have to be done until 1836, but in the 1832 time frame, going into the election, and they make a political calculation that let's put the, the bank up to reauthorize it early. Let's vote to reauthorize it four years early before the election, and let's uh, get that through. And it did get passed. So the Senate and the House voted to approve the third bank of the United States to reauthorize the second bank. And Jackson did something that had never been done before for political reasons. And let me ask you this. What did he do in July of 1832 that a president had never done for this kind of a reason after Congress had voted to reauthorize or to reenact the bank of the United States? What did Jackson do? Veto the new bank. Exactly. So Jackson... Um, the, the veto had been used before, but that was where presidents disagreed constitutionally with a law, not if they disagreed with the politics of the law. So this is the first time that a president is vetoing a law that passed by, by you know, a fairly sizable majority because he just didn't like the policy. And Congress did not like, especially the names I mentioned, this is – this is Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, and I'm pretty sure Calhoun also didn't like the fact that the, now you're using a president who's using the veto as a way of shaping. And, and once a president's willing to say, I'm going to veto if I don't like legislation, in order for it to get through not just the House and the, and the Senate, you're going to need the uh, – help me with the percentages. What, what percent of the Senate and the House do you need in order to override a veto? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. So here the interesting thing is that um, if you consider the House and the Senate to be democracy in action, um, you need a supermajority to override a veto. But Jackson's position is that, yeah, I'm going to use my veto, whatever I need to do, not to follow through on my stronger exercise of presidential power. So Jackson so, was a Democrat when it suited him, but here he was a, he a constitutional Republican, and he was going by the requirements of the Constitution. Which is why I'm, I'm trying to build up the anticipation when he get, when he has a fight over executive privilege, what do you think is going to happen? And you're going to see the arguments that get made. So yep. um, I mentioned to you that he thought that the Supreme Court would only have the influence of the force of their reasoning. In other words, persuasion should right. be how the court works, but the court shouldn't have the ability to enforce its orders, uh, which is a very controversial issue. Yep. Uh, also, as I said, he wanted to support the common man, and when he was elected the first time, just to make a symbolic statement about he's, you know, he's the man of the people, he opens up the White House to allow everyone, all his campaign supporters, to come in into the new White House. And, they and what trashed happens it. when a lot of people who have been drinking come into the White House to check out uh, what the White House looks like? They trashed it. the doors. They trashed it. Manny, what do you think happens when little Jackson supporters come running into the White House? I believe that they did what the Obama fanatics did. They trashed the White House. So expensive China was, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the cups and the, all, all kinds of uh, materials, uh, the carpets were destroyed and uh, things were trashed uh, when the Jackson supporters came into the, the, the House of the People or the, the White House. Uh, so also he supported deregulation, and the reason why for him it's deregulation is because he thought that regulations entrenched the rich. And by getting rid of the government, getting the government out of the way, right. that would allow individual talents to come up to the top. Well. Also, he was interested in firing as many people as he could. He believed in when a new government comes in, a new regime or a new president and a new administration, 
situation. Get rid of the dead weight. Get rid of the people yeah. who aren't going to support you. So he believed in opening up the government to the new jobs, which creates issues. Uh, so for him, uh, to give you some comparisons, prior presidents had vetoed in the, all the years prior to Jackson only nine vetoes of legislation. Jackson, during his two terms, vetoed 12. So nine vetoes prior to Jackson altogether, and then he increases that to a total of 12 that he does by himself. And he also is the first president to make use of the pocket veto. So that's a little bit of background about Jackson. So let's now go back into building up to the, the Bank of the United States. So he won re-election. 219 electoral college votes to Clay only has 49. So that's a overwhelming landslide, 219 to 49. And then a handful, seven went to a third party candidate. Um, so Jackson comes into his second term. He's renewing his offensive against the bank. He vetoed it before the election. And now, uh, remember, the bank is going to stay in effect until 1836 when it's going to run out. But he wants to get rid of it before it runs out. So he makes the decision. And to him, the Bank of the United States was a monster, which he wants to kill the monster, kill the beast. So he makes the decision in 1833 after the election to withdraw all the federal funds from the Bank of the United States and transfer them to the state banks, which, by the way, are going to be the state banks that he favors. Uh, so this gets into you know, the politics of uh, you know, what, what banks are you going to support and where should the money go. So this is going to create a controversy because the law that deals with the Bank of the United States only allows the Secretary of Treasury to withdraw money from the Bank of the United States and give reasons to Congress if you're going to withdraw money from the bank. So let me give you some of the quotes about what's going to happen. And let's go ahead to – so under the, the, the rules in the force at the time, and because it dated back to 1789, but there's the law that deals with in the charter of how the bank works. Jackson's determined that he wants to take all the deposits away immediately. He doesn't want to wait till 1836. He orders his secretary of the treasury, his name was Lewis McLean of Delaware, uh, to start taking taking money out of the bank. And McLean demurs. He says, I'm not sure I can start taking money out because that's not what the charter tells me to do. And, uh, and where are you going to put this money when you take it out? Just deposit it into the state bank. Yeah. That's not what the charter says because it's the money of the Bank of the United States. It's not money that's – remember, all the money of the Bank of the United States is supposed to stay in the bank, but Jackson wants to take it out. So what Jackson does when McLean doesn't want to cooperate, he promotes McLean to become the Secretary of State. So he promotes him up. Dude, yeah, to so ship he, him out. <laughs> Get him out of shipping him out because he <laughs> likes McLean, but McLean doesn't want to cooperate. So he uh, he moves him to become another position, Secretary of State uh, from Treasury. From Treasury. And then he appoints the next appointment to the Treasury Department. And uh, here, same idea. The next person appointed is William Duane, D-U-A-N-E. Duane also isn't sure that he has the authority to do it. So he fears setting off a constitutional fire cri- firestorm and uh, a crisis. Uh, he's not sure that there could be a financial havoc that's, re- that's reaped if uh, we start messing around with the, the levers of the, of the federal bank. And Jackson fires him, doesn't appoint them anywhere else, just fires Duane. Then he goes through his third Secretary of Treasury. This is Roger Tanney of Maryland. All right. And Tanney doesn't want to get into a fight with Jackson, and he probably worked it out with Tanney what Tanney would do. So Tanney immediately begins transferring funds, the deposits, into the select pet banks, is what they called it, that were supportive of, of Jackson and the, and the Democrats who were the members of his party. And when Congress meets, because back then Congress wouldn't meet again after an election until I believe it was March. So he does all this in the period when Congress is out of session. He fires two members of his cabinet, of, of the Treasury Department, and uh, he starts having the third treasurer transfer money before Congress can come back into session. And you can be sure that Clay and these others are not going to be happy. So Clay, uh, as the head of the Whig Party, sort of evolves in this period to oppose the Democrats. So Clay is convinced that, that they have to investigate and to find out what's being done with these withdrawal of deposits, where are they going, and he issues a demand for a copy of a letter that apparently had been written by Jackson, where Jackson explains what he wants his cabinet to do and gives his reasons on why he wants to do this. And this is now building up into this, this crisis. Clay wants the copy of this letter, which describes what the theory was that Jackson is using, and it's a communication to his cabinet. And here are the arguments. And Jackson was a lawyer. Before he was a general, he was a lawyer. And 
we've talked about on prior nights, uh, some of the, the legal analysis that was done in the, in the nullification crisis. So here, now you have Jackson, who's a big proponent of a strong federal government and the president in particular, the first branch among equals. So here's his argument. He says that if I'm required to produce the document, he argued, he might as well, quote, be required to detail to the Senate the free and private conversations I have had with officers on any subject relating to their duties and my own. He goes on to say that he has no reason, he sees no reason why a document was needed for the Senate in the performance of any legislative duty, and he believed production would interfere with the power of the operation of the executive branch. And remember what I just said. Jackson is saying that he can't understand how this has anything to do with a legislative duty, and he's worried about how it would interfere with the free and private conversations I have held with the officers in my cabinet. So he's laying out the theory of executive privilege, right? Remember that he thinks that the Congress should only do what's their legislative duty, and it's nobody's business, his communications with his cabinet. And we should know that the communications with his cabinet were somewhat controversial because two of his secretaries of treasury weren't agreeing with him and did not want to violate what they thought were the requirements of the charter of the Bank of the United States and the requirements of the law that created the bank. So there was some opposition in the cabinet. So what is going to happen here? Jackson argues that I don't have to turn this over. This is my private communications. And he writes a, um, a protest. And let's see, this is one of the most forceful declarations of presidential power in American history, and he has an expansive vision of the presidency, and he's worried that the Congress should not – he wants to, to check not just Congress, but he wants to check the bank. He thought the bank was the problem. So let's, let's lay it out to you. Um, this is the Senate because the Democrats have control of the House, but the Senate is more controlled by the Whigs. Clay is, I believe, the Speaker or the Senate Majority Leader. What's the position of the Senate? The Senate Majority Leader or the President of the Senate, if you will, the, the leading officer. And the Vice President is the head of the Senate, but Clay, I believe, is the uh, the, the head of the, the Whig Party in the Senate. So what is the Whigs' reaction when Jackson says a, a very vocal, no, no, I'm not going to turn it over. It is none of your business. These are my private communications with my cabinet. And uh, by the the money's already been taken out of the bank, so there's no point in you further investigating this. The decision's been made, and uh, it's too late now because, remember, Congress is out of session. I've done what I've done. So what does the what does the Senate do when this is really Henry Clay, when the president is saying, I'm not going to turn over this letter that was written to the, uh, to the cabinet? I have no idea. I think he but just Jackson is refusing to give it a single letter. He doesn't redact it. He doesn't allow it to be seen under, um, you know, closed doors. As an example of under um, under Adams, that was the X Y Z treaty, the X Y Z affair, the you know, Treaty of Morfontaine. Adams agrees to allow the correspondence that was being asked for to come into the, the chambers. He locks the door, lets everybody see it. And that was an example of be careful what you ask for because, as it turns out, the X Y Z correspondence with the French ambassadors. It was embarrassing for the Jeffersonians and for the, back then, the Democrat Republicans. And uh, that led to actually a victory for the Federalists because they were very happy to turn it over. So here, Jackson refuses to turn it over. He says, no, he releases nothing. Mm-hmm. Although there was no secret to what he was telling his, his, uh, his cabinet. And I'll point out to you that when you get into a discussion of executive privilege, let's go back to the first evening. And the theory of executive privilege, it is strongest when it's being exercised to cover confidential uh, diplomatic relations or military secrets or you know, intricate decisions uh, that get to the communications between a president and his senior advisors. So here, it's not military secrets, but it's the confidences that the president should share with his cabinet. But again, there was no secret to what he was telling them because everyone understood what he was telling them. In fact, the, the, the papers apparently had already printed some of these correspondence anyway, so there are really no secrets. But he's holding the line and he's saying, I'm not going to share it. I have no reason to do it. So let's go back to the question. Uh, what does Henry Clay in the Senate do, and they don't have enough votes in the House to do anything because the Jeffersonian Democrats control the House. So really the question is, what can the Senate do when the president is refusing to cooperate? And I want to read to you what the request was so we know exactly what was being requested. I mean, I can only think of impeachment, but... Hold him in contempt. Okay, so these are good suggestions, and you're right, Manny. If he doesn't control the House, you're not going to be able to impeach anybody. So what can the Senate do when the president is not cooperating? So I want to read you just what the quote was or what was being requested, if I can find it. Okay. 
here's here it is. So it was Calhoun, it was Webster and Clay, and Clay opened fire on December 10th, 1833, by pushing through a resolution asking Jackson to, quote, explain the paper he had read to the cabinet ordering the violation of the charter. That was the request, if you go so, and read it. Uh, what, an executive summary? No. So he wants, according an to the resolution, they want a... A resolution was passed asking Jackson to explain the, quote, paper that he had read to the cabinet ordering the violation of the charter. They want an explanation, and they want his paper explaining why he made the order that he did to uh, to turn over all the funds from the federal bank of the United States to the banks. And Jackson promptly replied, and again, this is more of his, his response. He says, the executive is a coordinate and independent branch of the government equally with the Senate, and I have yet to learn under what constitutional authority that branch of the legislature has a right to require of me an account of any communication made to the heads of my department. So he refused to turn anything over. And John Quincy Adams is in the House. Remember, he was the prior president. He wound up going into House of Representatives. So Quincy Adams was shocked by the tone of insolence and insult with which Jackson had exclaimed this executive privilege. But he admitted that Clay was paid in his own coin because Clay and Jackson are going at each other. You know, these are two big, broaded, or I should say, um, you know, very uh, egotistical, and uh, you know they were, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of power and they had a lot of influence, and these are titans, a clash of titans. Uh, so, what does the Senate do? And you're right, the Senate can't impeach it. The House isn't going to take the first steps because impeachment has to start with the House, and there are supporters for Jackson in the House. So, what can the Senate do? And I think Ed, you mentioned they could do what? Hold him in contempt. Hold them in contempt. All right, they didn't quite do contempt. They did something a step below contempt, which these days sometimes you hear thrown around. A reprimand? So short of contempt. Reprimand? Expressed in the opinion. Cen- censure. Censure. That's yeah. exactly what there you I want go. to read you what the censure was. <laughs> so this gets interesting. So. Let's see. The anti-Jackson minority denounced the the iniquity of tampering. But before I get into that, let me let me talk about uh, what the decision was. They're going to they're going to censor censor or censure. So we'll be careful that we use the proper pronunciation. Censure the president. And uh, Jackson did not like this. And I want to read you exactly what the terminology was when they voted on the censure and what the vote was. The, the numbers. I mean, there is no real ramification of being censured. It's like a blight on your reputation. But that's yes. about it. Right, and he was he. It was in the second term, I think. Or I mean, getting so, censured in, in politics today is just like uh, nothing, just part of the game. Yeah, dirtying your shoes, they stepping on your shoes. That's about it. All right, continue. Okay, so they do a censure motion, and I want to tell you what the numbers were. Uh, so I may have to come back to it, but uh, at the end of the day. Jackson um, did not like this because he thought, uh, A, nowhere does it say in the Constitution, by the way, you know, the House has the right to impeach and the Senate has the right to convict. The word censure does not appear in the Constitution. So here we go. What is Jackson's response? And uh, he continues defunding the Bank of the United States. And, you know, he continues doing what he's going to do, which is, you know, expanding executive authority. And what I want to tell you is... Um, Ultimately, and the next election comes around, and this gets to the point that a censure is meaningless. It just expresses an opinion of the people who are in the House or the Senate at the time. There are no teeth and there are no consequences to a censure if the voters don't agree with the censure. So um, Jackson chooses, and this is interesting, that uh, this is a Senator Benton, and Benton had been involved in a in a duel with Jackson uh, years earlier, but then they become colleagues and friends yeah. after a duel. Imagine that. Well... In fact, Jackson, I think, actually had a bullet that uh, that he was hit. He was hit, but not killed in his duel by Senator Thomas Hart Benson. He was from and Missouri. Benson, I will check and see, but it's okay. very possible. Yep. So Benson becomes one of the congressional leaders that's going to you know, help with the fight to undermine the bank in the United States. And ultimately, what's decided is that. Um, Benton is able to Benson, B-E-N-S-O-N. Yes? And here okay. it is. He had previously fought a duel with Jackson uh, with a bullet in Jackson's shoulder. And that may have been in the shoulder his entire life. I'm not sure if they ever took it out. Uh, but, uh, again, this is a guy that duels and he takes politics very seriously. So after that uh, that vote by the Senate to censure him in the next election, the Whigs lose control of the Senate. And um, let me read you exactly what happens. So... 
They made a motion, and Benton from Missouri, you're exactly right. And so Thomas Hart Benson from Missouri moves to expunge. It's not enough to to repeal it, because repealing it means that it had been, but now it's being repealed. Expunge means to remove it or nullify it entirely from the record. So Benton makes a motion to physically expunge it from the Journal of the Senate. And even a few of the Democratic senators hesitated to meddle with the official journal of the, of the Senate, because the Constitution says that a journal shall be kept. So what do you think they're going to vote to do? Are they going to agree to expunge it from the record of the Senate? And how do you expunge it from the journal or the record of the, of the Senate? So that's a question for you. Jeez. How do you expunge it from the record of the Senate? So they had a journal, which was the Senate Journal and the House Journal. They break so up. This is now 1836. So there's no whiteout. So it can't no be whiteout. That. The journal was from 1834 when, um, you know, when they made that motion to censure Jackson. It's now 1836, going into 1837. The new election took place. So one of the first items of business, the the, the largely Democrat-controlled Senate wants to expunge. That's the motion to expunge it. What do they vote to do? And how do you expunge it? To absolve the president of. Uh, Take it off the record. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you got me there. I think we're just playing a game of semantics here. Legal. So, do you rip it out from the book? Do you cross it out? Do you, you know, totally white it out by just using a black uh, in a pen all over it so you can't see it? So here's the answer: that they did vote to expunge it, not just to remove it, but to expunge it. The journal of the proceeding of the Senate from 1834 was brought in. I was put on the secretary's desk. It was open, laid flat, and using a straight edge, they drew a box around it, and then they drew X's to cross it out. So you could still see what it said, but they drew X's through it, and then they, then they wrote in the margins, expunged by order of the Senate the 16th day of January in the year of our Lord, 1837. So uh, this is one of the first things the new Congress does, and uh, we will have a picture of it if anyone wants to see it. And uh, remember, Clay is a big personality, and he's not happy about this, including some of the Democrats are not happy happy that we're tampering with the official journal of the, of the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, so Benton walks home with Clay that night. It's, uh, they stayed up until 3 o'clock in the morning. So these are enemies. Benton is the guy that wants it to be expunged and succeeds in that motion. Clay is the guy that dresses in black to show that he's not happy that they're going to be interfering with the, um, you know, the, the journal of the Senate. So Clay speaks out against it and is outvoted. The two of them walk home together and stay in the same house. Uh, it must have been Clay's house until 3 a.m., rehashing their discussions and, uh, and drinking. So that tells you how members of opposite parties could still get along and still drink late into the, light, the night after a big political battle. Mm. And the next day, Benton sends his son over to the White House to present Jackson with the pen that was used in expunging, you know, <laughs> making that box around and Xing out the language where Jackson was censured. And uh, Clay becomes glum, and Clay confides to a friend that the Senate is no longer a place for any decent man, and I am truly sick of Congress. So this is Clay's reaction to uh, what, what had transpired. So uh, long story short, here's the vote. Uh, the vote on March 28, 1834, which is because the House wouldn't do anything, and Clay has a lot of authority in the Senate. They vote to censure Jackson for not following the law under the Bank of the United States and for not turning over the correspondence that they had asked for. And the vote was 26 to 20, and they censured Jackson, and they also censured another member of the administration who was doing the, uh, you know, actually carrying out his orders. Uh, but again, what does the censure get you? Because it's an example of how if the next party comes in, uh, they can delete, which is what they did. They, and this is the only time, by the way, that the Senate has voted to censure. The Senate has never voted to do it again. That's yeah, great. Because it, it seemed like uh, it was all for nothing. It doesn't <laughs> do much. Let me ask you, did uh, Jackson appoint Roger Tawney to the Supreme Court? That is a good question. I think it's the same Tawney. I'm not sure who appointed him, but uh, there's a good chance, and we can look at that for next week. It may okay. have been Jackson who appointed him. So he became the Secretary of Treasury. He did what the president wanted. In a way, you could compare him to Bork, right? So if you went yep. back to the Nixon well. story of, of Nixon versus the United States and the Saturday Night Massacre. So let's talk about that real quickly. So this, the background is that Nixon orders Elliot Richardson, who was the Attorney General, to fire Archibald Cox, who was the special prosecutor. Elliot Richardson and refuses to do it. So then the new attorney general is William Ruckelshaus. William's Ruckelhaus refuses to fire Archibald Cox. So then President Nixon appoints Robert Bork. And what does Robert Bork do, Manny? Uh, he fires a special prosecutor. He fires a special prosecutor, and then he gets appointed uh, to the appellate court eventually, but not by Nixon. So in a well, way, 20 years later, they burnt him. <laughs> 
you know, yep. 20, it was a 20 year long Eight, 14 or 15. Yeah, he was born. 14, so, 86, it, 87, around there. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's uh, uh, most of our failings in government are strictly because of personalities. It has nothing to do but with But remember, uh, Bork was one of the people that advised Goldwater not to support the Civil Rights Act of 64. Well, the other one was uh, became he, Supreme Rehnquist in Supreme Court because, you know, so. The truth is that he was right in not supporting the civil rights because it sucked. Well. It created the inner city <clears throat> plantation. That's, yep. It's it's just called a bold, a, a bold message uh, 20 years ahead of his time. But uh, it proved to be absolutely true. Goldwater there was you right. Are. And Eisenhower's Civil Rights Act was much more in, in line with what he had done with the blacks in, in the military. Yeah. yeah. And uh, who, who sabotaged his Civil Rights Act? Lyndon Baines Johnson as <laughs> Senate president. He kept it under his... Are. And that's just the harsh reality of our history. So, so this that's is how the, we got to Candace Owens. <laughs> that's a giant leap. So this ends our Statues and Stories All segment right, for the week. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thank Adam. You. And let's find out who, who nominated Roger Tawney to the Supreme Court. We will find that out. And also, one of these nights, I want to talk with you about more theory. And I want to talk about John Hart Eli. And I want to talk about the categories of presidential power under Jackson's decision in the steel seizure case. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So, that's... have a good night. And by the way, happy, and I shouldn't say happy, but uh, I'm paying my respects to our veterans. Yep. And uh, I'm thanking the families of those who've made the ultimate sacrifice on this Memorial Day. Yep. And we'll end the show with a moment of silence of 60 seconds. Take care, my friends, and stay free. <laughs>